Well, we come to Scripture, let's bow our heads in prayer again. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you again for your words. And as we uh, give some time to thinking carefully about it, we pray you give us uh, minds and hearts to focus and, and to understand all that you would say to us. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to read the passage, it's a very short passage, uh, seven verses from Luke chapter 2, about the birth of Jesus. And uh, so let's uh, hear how it's described by Luke. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them at the inn. Amen. I think it's wonderful to be able to spend time, at least once a year, uh, thinking about the the birth of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now in this passage we finally come to the birth. We've been looking at Luke's Gospel over the last uh, few weeks, and uh, we come to the birth today. And uh, as you read a passage like that, you might be thinking, well, okay, there's nothing particularly remarkable about this passage. Um, Luke is very matter-of-fact about the events surrounding it. Nothing supernatural happens uh, at this point. Um, And it does describe some of the circumstances around the birth. There's quite a bit of inconvenience for Mary particularly um, and Joseph. Uh, Mary's not able to stay at home and give, have a nice, comfortable home birth um, because uh, she has to go with Joseph under the rule of the Romans uh, to Bethlehem, which is something like three days' journey south, uh, so that he might register, uh, probably for tax reasons, under the Romans. And while they're there, of course, the inevitable happens, and And Mary gives birth in Bethlehem. And so, as you look at it, if you were only to look at that passage, you might think, well, it's not the most exciting story in the Bible, um, unless you know something about Jesus himself. And you might think, well, it's just, just life, isn't it? Or so we might think at first sight, of course. If that's your thought, let me try to change your mind this morning. Because remember, there's been a great deal of supernatural activity uh, leading up to this point. Uh, Mary, nine months earlier, has uh, experienced a visitation, at least nine months earlier, experienced a visitation from an angel, Gabriel. And Gabriel has explained that uh, she was going to become pregnant, not by Joseph, but by the Holy Spirit. Now that's a bit strange, right from the start. And creates all kinds of family problems. Because people don't understand and don't believe in the supernatural. If you're used to not having the supernatural, then you don't believe in the supernatural. And uh, so that's all kinds of uh, strangeness going on here. And of the child, Gabriel says, looking back to chapter 1, 
verse 32, He will be great, and He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. What a remarkable thing to say to an ordinary girl in a nowhere town up in the north who wasn't expecting anything except to be married perhaps pretty soon. And then this happens. And lo and behold, she, over time she conceives... And here she is now in Bethlehem with this child conceived in such mysterious and supernatural circumstances. Well, I want to, in that, as we think about that lead up to it, I want to consider a couple of things that are going on in the background, which we could easily lose sight of or just not know about if we just read the seven verses we read earlier. But they are things in the background that are of vital importance to understanding uh, God's ways of redemption through Jesus Christ. And then after those couple of things, consider with me the circumstances into which Jesus is born and what that tells us. So first of all, the first thing that's going on in the background is God's providence. God's providence. So the birth takes place at a time when there is some upheaval, not just in life of Mary and Joseph, but in the lives of everyone in Judea. The Romans uh, have issued a decree. Uh, The Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus has passed on a decree, and the local governor Quirinius has sets up a register of the population, probably so that they can take in the tax that the, the emperor needs. And the requirement was that the heads of the household should go to their own town, which means probably where they had significant property. Joseph probably owned property, although it doesn't say so here. But that's the only reason that people can think of why uh, Joseph would go to Bethlehem. And so Joseph has to go to Bethlehem, as I said, three days' journey south. And as you read that story, you think, well, that's interesting background, but, you know, you should always ask the question, why does Luke tell us that? Why is Luke telling us that? Is he just adding flavour to the story? Or is there a reason why he's filling that in? What's the relevance of that story to what Luke is telling us? And, of course, the relevance is found in the city to which they have to go, Bethlehem. It's here called the City of David. Now, David was a great king a thousand years before. And Bethlehem was the place where David's family came from. So you can read about that in in 1 Samuel, chapter 16, when David first appears on the scene. His father, Jesse, was a a Bethlehemite. And uh, Samuel goes and finds David. Remember, he's looking for, not for grand men who look the part, but he's looking for men, someone who has a heart after God. And God sees the heart, doesn't he? And uh, he sees that David has that heart, and he's, he's a young boy with a ruddy face and so on. But he's the one, and he's anointed by Samuel to be king, and he doesn't become king for quite some time later, but he's anointed by God, ready for that great office. And so Bethlehem has historical significance for Israel. 
But is that all it is? Is it just a coincidence that it's an important place in history? You know, often politicians do, that, do this. They, if they want to make an important announcement, sometimes they choose a, a historically relevant place to go and do it. So that the backdrop is relevant to the announcement that they're making. And it just adds to the strength of the point. Is that all that Luke is doing? He's telling us that this is uh, an important place. Well, there's more. Because in the Old Testament, Bethlehem was not simply a significant place in past history, but it was mentioned as an important place in the future for the prophets of old. Micah lived about 700 years before Jesus, 300 years after David. And he said, and we read it earlier, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Now that's a really important verse in the Old Testament. And you may remember that, that other story that Matthew tells us. Remember those wise men coming from the east and traveling all that way to come to, to Bethlehem? And before they get to Bethlehem, they come to Jerusalem and they meet King Herod, uh, the king of, the, uh, of Judea. And uh, tell Ju- King Herod, who's a little bit perturbed about this, but they tell King Herod, we'll come to see a king, not you Herod, but some other king. And Herod's a bit perturbed by this. And Herod wants to know where the king is. And he asks his chief priests and his scribes and says, Where is the Christ to be born? And somehow Herod makes the link between this king these wise men are looking for and the Christ that is promised in the Old Testament. And he asks his own people, he says, Where is the Christ to be born? And they say in Micah 5.2, From you will come a ruler. And so the wise men go off to Bethlehem. Now put all this together. And we see the events of ordinary life for Mary and Joseph, which are not particularly supernatural. They are very ordinary events. And yet they are coming together to accomplish what God desires in his way of salvation. This is what we call God's providence. God managing the affairs of people and nations to bring about everything that he requires. Westminster Shorter Catechism, which you should all know. (laughs) At least I've read. Question 11 says, What are the works of God's providence? God's works of providence are, answer, his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. What the Bible teaches us is that God manages the affairs of people and nations to bring about everything that he requires. 
It's not just that the the world is kind of set up and is running its own course and God is somehow trying to intervene and trying to kind of direct things in the right direction and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Some people think of God like that. No, God is fully in control of all the events of people and nations to bring about all that he desires. And this is what we're seeing here. God bringing together events to achieve everything that he plans and purposes, even amongst the sin and mess and turmoil of daily life. And here's the interesting thing. One of the interesting things. The world has no idea it's happening. Everybody out there has no idea it's happening. They think they're just living their lives. But God is in control. And he knows what he's doing. He... The world has its own plans and its own ideas. Do you think Caesar Augustus was playing a part in the plans of God? Or Quirinius? Do you think they had any idea what was going on in issuing that decree and setting up a register? They knew nothing about it, about what God was doing. You see, people are like characters in a play that God has written. And in the world of the characters, the characters live their own lives, don't they? Shakespeare, when he wrote Hamlet or Macbeth, I mean, they live their own lives in these, these plays. And yet, who is controlling everything? Shakespeare determined the story, didn't he? Well, God does so much more than that. God is in control. So the world has no idea what's happening. But God knows. And what about Joseph and Mary? Did they understand what was going on? God's people? Did they understand what was going on? All they knew, perhaps, was inconvenience. Maybe they had a row about it in in Nazareth. And they said, Joseph, Mary's saying to Joseph, why don't you just go? Because it's, it's only the heads of the household that need to register. I can just stay here and be comfortable. No, Mary, you need to come with me. You know the reputation that we have now because you're pregnant and we're not, we're not even properly married yet. You ought to come with me. Do I have to come? Yeah. Yes, you have to come. You know, you can just imagine this kind of inconvenience that's going on amongst godly people. And they're trying to work it out. And so there's a bit of huffing and puffing and maybe complaining. I'm speculating. You can reject all of that if you want. But maybe they had no idea that God was doing all this in their lives and arranging things, managing things to bring about all that He desires. This morning, do you ever think about your life in that way? Maybe you live, and I know I'm, I have a temptation to do this as well, maybe you live with a compartmentalized view of life. There's ordinary life with ordinary things that I'm in control of. And then there's spiritual life. It's separate. You bump into that when you come to church or you open your Bible or something like that. But the rest of life is different from this life here. And somehow we can be tempted to think that one has got nothing to do with the other. But in all of it, God is at work. And it may be very confusing for us. It may even be annoying for us. Or disturbing for us. But God knows what he's doing. From beginning to end. 
So this passage reminds us to trust the providence of God in every circumstance. So let's move on. Uh, Secondly, let's think about God's covenant. Covenant? (laughs) Where does it mention covenant in this passage? It doesn't say anything about covenant. Well, it doesn't directly. But it is what's behind everything that happens in the Bible. Think of the circumstances that are pertaining at the time. The Romans are the dominant power, even over the Jews, and increasingly so. They want to know how many people are in Judea, so they can make a list and make sure all the tax comes in. It's bad enough paying tax to your own government, but when you have to pay tax to a foreign government that's occupying you, that's even worse. Now why does that matter? Well, it raises the question for the Jews, what about all the covenanted promises that God made to the people of Israel and and to the Jews in times past? Isn't God going to rule through his Messiah and we are going to rule with him? The Jews would have thought. But God seems to be absent And all there seems to be is the power of the Romans. Has God's covenant failed? Has God moved on to some other people? Or has he just given up altogether? You see, the present circumstances of Mary and Joseph would have raised all those kinds of questions amongst everyone, at least, who is thinking about the Old Testament. Has God departed for good? And there is a sense in which all of that is true. The old covenant with Moses is coming to an end. It's about to become obsolete, as Hebrews calls it. But it's not the end of God's promise. Because the most important thing is about to happen. That the person who was promised is about to arrive. The seed of the woman spoken to Adam and Eve, the prophet that Moses spoke of, the priest king that David prophesied of, he is about to appear. And everything else may pass away in the old covenant, but the Messiah is coming. And so out of God's decree of love towards his people and out of a desire for his own glory... He is bringing about the birth of the Saviour that we need. And a new covenant is coming. So friends, we said, we said a moment ago that God is a God of providence. And that's a wonderful truth to rest in. But there is a danger that we only rest, you know, stick with the doctrine of providence. That we can become a bit fatalistic. And we say, oh, whatever will be, will be. I've heard Christians talk about that. You know, well, God will do what God will do. The answer to that error is covenant. God's covenant promises. We are not simply helpless pawns in God's plans. And Christians often fall into that trap because... 
They have not grasped his covenant, his covenant love and faithfulness to his people. And the birth of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's covenant promises from which, which come from his overflowing love to his people. So God's covenant. But lastly, let's think about the necessary impoverishment of the Son of God. This uh, baby Jesus is born in the city of David. And we've already been told that he will sit on the throne of David forever. And yet he is a king like no other king. A king born into poverty. Just think about the circumstances of his birth. Uh, This little family comes to Bethlehem. And so does everyone else. (laughs) To their hometown. And even though Mary is close to giving birth, there is nowhere for them to stay, no place for them in the inn. They couldn't buy their way in. No one was willing to give up a place. No one recognizes what's happening. The king is about to arrive and there's nowhere for them to stay. Now the tradition has it that uh, Jesus was born in a stable with animals, mainly because of the mention of a manger Uh, which is just an animal feeding trough. And so people have built this cutesy picture of nice cosy hay and sweet Bambi, uh, animals with Bambi-sized eyes and all looking on nicely with head to one side. Uh, You see all the Christmas cards like that. And this cutesy picture. But Luke doesn't actually say any of that. He just says there's a manger. And it's quite possible There was no stable at all. It's quite possible they had to make the best of it in a yard outside. Maybe. Luke doesn't say. So here's the king of kings being born in a yard somewhere. Because there's nowhere to stay. And when you think about that, you think, oh, the depths to which God would condescend to come to be the saviour of men and women, boys and girls. You see, this, is, this Jesus is the one of whom John was later to say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not made anything that was made. And so all the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in eternity past, the Son of God, enjoying the beauty and the perfection of the glory of God. And He comes down to poverty, to nothing. He forsakes all that glory to come and be rejected, starting his life in a courtyard somewhere, in a feeding trough. And so truly, he, he started off and continued to be a man of sorrows, as Isaiah calls him, this Messiah. Despised and rejected of men, acquainted with grief. A man held low in the esteem, uh, low esteem in the eyes of others. And it didn't get any better as he grew up. There was a man who came to Jesus once. He says, I want to follow you 
And Jesus responds in Luke 9, 58, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So he came into the world with nothing. He lived with nothing. He died with nothing. But why? Why this sorrowful life? Isaiah 53 goes on to say, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was a man of sorrows. He was a baby of sorrows. He was on a one-way, 33-year-long journey to the place where he would be utterly despised, utterly rejected, truly out in the wilderness on the cross where he paid for our sins and brought us forgiveness. See, this is our Saviour. The one whom Zechariah in chapter 1 of Luke called the horn of salvation. Who through his suffering and perfect obedience to his heavenly father worked a salvation for his people. Let's pray together. Father we thank you for the gift of your dear son and his coming into the world in such straitened circumstances. But he did so for us. And we rejoice today that he is our saviour. He did that for us and for the glory of God. We pray you'd help us today to remember that and to live in the light of it. In Jesus' name, amen.